You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For July 10th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. We've heard a lot of concerns expressed about how dependent the energy transition may be on certain key metals, both fairly common ones like lithium, copper, nickel, and cobalt, as well as the so-called rare earth metals like vanadium and indium. These metals are essential components of things like solar panels, wind turbines, lithium-ion batteries, and other devices that are part of the clean energy solution set. But there are questions being raised. Is there enough of these metals in the Earth's crust, or at least enough of them that can be produced at acceptable prices, to sustain the progress of energy transition as anticipated? Are these metals being produced in a sustainable way? How will the geographic concentration of these metals affect our geopolitics and trade as the energy transition progresses? How confident can we be about our assessments of their abundance? And how confident can we be about how much of them we'll need in the future, given the rapid evolution of many of these technologies and the many alternate ways of producing them? Our guest in this episode brings all of these questions into a whole new focus and shows why these questions can't be answered with some back-of-the-envelope calculation using simple division. Instead of asking whether there is enough of these metals in the Earth's crust, he says, or about how they're mined, we should be asking much more sophisticated questions about the chemical industry and the opaque, illiquid markets in which these metals are traded. Dr. Morgan Bazillion directs the Payne Institute at the Colorado School of Mines, where he's a professor of public policy. Previously, he was the lead energy specialist at the World Bank. He has over two decades of experience in energy, natural resources, and environmental policy and international affairs, and he's written several recent thought-provoking papers and essays on the role of critical materials in the energy transition. He has also been a longtime friend of mine and a supporter of the show, so I'm very pleased to finally have him on. Then in the news segment, we'll have a look at a new plan for a big battery in Scotland. We'll update the outlook for coal securitization in several U.S. states. We'll revisit the topic of operating solar plants in a flexible manner. We'll note fresh evidence of the blatantly political motivations of the Trump administration in backing failing coal and nuclear plants. And we'll consider one author's speculation that we may have just seen the beginning of the end for fuel cell vehicles. But first, our conversation with Dr. Morgan Bazillion, recorded June 7th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Morgan, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we dive in on today's topic, I thought our listeners might appreciate a quick primer on what the Colorado School of Mines is all about and what your part of it, the Payne Institute, does. So why don't you tell us about that? The Colorado School of Mines is one of the finest technical universities in the country. It's a public university. Started in 1874, before the state of Colorado actually began. And was this year or last year ranked as the finest number one minerals and mining engineering program in the world. So that relates to the topic we're going to cover today. 
as it evolves and the tagline is energy environment and natural resources they have decided to stand up a new institute called the Payne institute so that came from an endowment from jim and arlene Payne, and i'm the inaugural director the idea is that we will link that technical expert science math and engineering to the rest of the world which i'm calling public policy so now we have the Payne institute for public policy and we are getting started standing up several initiatives one of which is on today's topic the mineral foundations of the energy transition we also just launched an initiative on the future of oil and gas and we have work ongoing in everything from satellite detection of conflict to gas flaring and a couple other initiatives where we're fundraising now so we are going to hopefully make use of the strong resource of the faculty and research at mines and then link that to the rest of the world that's the idea very cool all right well so today we're going to talk about the metals needed in the energy transition it's a very popular topic and try to understand what their picture looks like for their supply because there's really been a fair amount of speculation out there that the supply of certain key metals like lithium and cobalt that are used in things like batteries for electric vehicles as well as the so-called rare earth elements that most people have never heard of that are used in things like wind turbines may be too limited to allow us to really achieve our energy transition goals or that the production of those metals comes with intolerable costs and side effects like child labor. So just generally, are you concerned about whether the supply of these metals will be adequate for us to proceed with our energy transition objectives? Yeah. So let's do that annoying thing where I say, let's take a step back. <laughs> okay. So let's just outline what that means. Your listeners are deeply engaged with the energy transition and define it in very different ways. And are guessing about what that energy transition will look like based on reasonable and unreasonable assumptions. So if we look back 100 years or 200 years from an energy perspective, we see a rapidly rising line of demand and change in how we produce and distribute and consume energy services. And that is set to continue as your listeners and researchers work on. Now, what that future looks like is not clear, but let's guess that it has an enormous amount of electric vehicles, batteries, stationary batteries, photovoltaics, wind turbines, somewhere in that future. So we can at least safely say that. If we look at that pathway, then even if it diverges from that fairly significantly, we can make the claim that that future energy transition will be more mineral and metal intensive than the past. Okay, so that's the starting point. Yeah, that's fair. And the other thing we can say about that energy transition is that it'll mostly be taking place in developing countries. So in non-OECD countries. And what I mean mostly is that the bulk of the energy demand and the bulk of the investment will be going into non-OECD or developing countries as OECD countries have relatively flat or lowering demand. So in all of that, are we concerned about the mineral and metal future in it? So I think a lot of the coverage in the newspapers and the media and even some in the research literature although less on that, tends to be a bit breathless on that and use big words like running out or security and criticality. So from a geological perspective of the resource, and I know, Chris, you've worked a lot on this on the oil side. Yeah. 
We are not concerned about the geological resource of these mined products. There is not a shortage of lithium in the Earth's crust. There is not a shortage of how we could use copper. Although that's how it's framed often, in the same way that we do have those limitations on, say, oil and gas, we have to consider this from a different perspective. So the question is not so much, are we going to run out of these things, but what the supply chains look like going forward. All right. So what about the rare earths in particular? Is there a distinction to be made there between them and, say, copper? Yeah, there certainly is. And the newspaper articles on this topic largely cover rare earths, even though, and we'll get into this later, even though the bulk of where we might be concerned or where we might look is on the battery cathode side and anode. So from graphite to lithium to nickel, manganese, and cobalt. But the rare earths make the news, and recently they make the news because of China. So in all of this space and in the entirety of this conversation around minerals and metals for the energy transition, but also for consumer electronics and for defense, China is the dominant player in the vast bulk of these things. And the way to think about it is, and I'm going to say this for all of these different minerals, is that the value is not just in the mined rock, but in how that is then processed into chemicals and then how it is put into manufactured products. So if we just think about mined rock, we will miss the important parts of, say, policy or regulation. So that's the first part. And to get closer to the rare earths, there is production of rare earths, as an example, in the United States today. That mine at Mountain Pass got reopened in 2010 after the prices of some of the heavy rare earths went up in relation to what China did vis-a-vis Japan in a trade war of sorts. But about 9 or 10%, as I understand it, of that mine is Chinese-owned, and 100% of the product coming out of the mine goes back to China for processing. And so then the newspaper covers it as, well, China's going to cut off rare earth supplies to the United States. That's bad. Well, okay, that if you draw your system boundary in that way, that does sound pretty bad. That would be bad. But the reality is that there's very few consumers of raw, rare earths in the United States. So we, as I said, take our product, send it for processing, and then China's dominating a lot of the markets for, say, permanent magnets or the things that you use neodymium or dysprosium for. And yes, we need them for things like oil refining and some high-tech defense applications, fighter planes and this kind of thing. There's not a huge market coming back for the raw material. So stopping the flow of the raw material could do more harm to China's, not only their reputation in the market, but their ability to actually make an impact on the United States is not all that significant from that particular part. But that's what's being covered every day in the newspaper. But again, in minerals and mining, the important part is not just the mining part, but that that entire supply chain. And remember, in China, they're taking the risk in those rare earths that they are very uh, environmentally damaging to mine. They don't sit by themselves. They are secondary or tertiary products. And that's another important part of this that does not have straight analogies to energy, that the markets are very thin and not transparent compared to what we might be more used to in, say, oil, gas, or electricity. Interesting. So you're saying it's a secondary product. Like, What would be the primary product? Well, say on something like 
tellurium that we're using cadmium telluride in the great state of Arizona for photovoltaics for photovoltaics from the best company in the states that does that first solar. So tellurium is about as rare as platinum on the Earth's crust. In the universe, some astrophysicists have actually said that tellurium is the most widely available mineral in the universe, but that's a secondary issue. No kidding. Yeah. But on Earth, it's only as available as platinum. And we can go into space mining later, which would be kind of interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And why I think we don't have a resource constraint. But on tellurium, you mostly get it as a byproduct of copper waste. And so most of it comes from that and not from a dedicated, say, mining process. And there's a fair amount of rare earth metals that also come from coal ash. You can get them from coal ash. And as you noted last week or the week before, the Department of Energy in the United States is putting out a big R&D program around that. Right. So, you know, all of these questions have, say, an energy element. So people that need to understand that the energy part, in this case, is a demand. You have a mining aspect to it. You have a chemical process. There are often more like a chemical market than a commodity market. Because of the process of refining it and getting it out of the source rock. Right. And then you have a technology aspect. So in trying to come up with policy or approaches or investment, you ideally have to have some understanding of each of those four things. Gotcha. Okay. That makes good sense. And we will talk about the demand side and the supply chain side of this also. But just to set sort of a baseline of understanding here, where are these important resources? Like which countries control the supply of the key metals like lithium and cobalt and the rare earths that we're most interested in for energy transition like vanadium and indium? Yeah. So all of that data is really well outlined in the U.S. critical materials report. So they put 35 minerals. And I think we're going to go into that that criticality aspect later. So each of those, you can go to the USGS report, look up the 35 in the United States and see where the dominant market is. Now, for lithium, we know the bulk of it is the actual materials coming from the triangle in South America. There's also resources in the United States, actually. There's resources in Canada, et cetera. Um, manganese, I think, is coming from South Africa. Nickel is not rare. It comes from all over the place, but China has a lot of that. Cobalt, as you know from the newspaper, primarily coming from the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So I think the important part in where these things come is twofold. One, to go back to my original point that the minerals themselves are not the end of the process. They're just the beginning, literally. And two, that if we look at those trade patterns, are they shifting things as the energy transition evolves or how are they shifting them? But in the bulk of these things and the bulk of, say, the U.S. critical minerals list, China comes up on way more of them than anyone else. So yes, you'll see some niobium coming from Brazil or South Africa for the manganese or things coming from Canada and Australia, but China really dominates that part of the market. And in fact, they dominate the other parts of the market too, because they've thought through that supply chain issue. All right. So let's talk a bit about the supply chain here, because that's what, you know, as you say, seems to occupy the news coverage. Is there really enough of these metals on the planet to satisfy what we think demand will be? I think the answer we're hearing is yes. According to one projection from the World Bank that you showed in a presentation you gave at Sarah Week, which I'll link to in the show notes, 
projected demand for lithium through 2050 is expected to surge almost tenfold. Demand for indium will go up 12-fold. Demand for cobalt is expected to increase almost sixfold. Demand for graphite will be almost fourfold. Vanadium demand to double and so on. So those sound like pretty severe numbers. I mean, even if there's enough of it in the Earth's crust that we can actually mine, can we mine it as quickly as our energy transition models would demand? And can we produce these elements at an acceptable price? Yeah, so that pulls together quite a few different things from price and markets to demand to the thing we always get wrong, which is the thing a lot of people on your show talk about, which is modeling the future. So let's start there. All of our projections are wrong. Fair enough. And in most cases, wildly wrong. But yes, it does look like there will be some supply gaps emerging for these chemicals or commodities in the medium term. And the one that pops up with the highest percentage numbers is lithium, as you said. So the bank has it at 10x for 2050, and I've seen numbers as high as 20x. There's a really intelligent consultant called Emily Hirsch on the lithium side that would be worth getting on here who watches the lithium markets really carefully. But you also see some of those midterm supply constraints. And I mean, medium term by say 2030 in possibly in cobalt and then possibly in the other ones, although nickel and bauxite and copper are much likely to have those constraints because of the way the markets operate. Hmm. So in those markets, the answer is very complicated as in all things. So when we talk about energy, as an example, which you do mostly on this show, you have an idea that you're operating mostly in markets that are liquid, transparent, relatively well-governed, open, even if there's degrees on that. Say if you took that list of 35 critical materials, you will not see markets resembling an oil or natural gas or an electricity market in any of them. Now, copper stands out as much better than a lot of them. But some of these markets are so small and that they're byproducts that not only don't you have actual markets as we understand them, but you also have a very hard time translating prices back to investment. How do you invest in a secondary market without a clear price signal? Mm. How do you invest in tellurium production without investing in the primary mineral? Right. And even in cobalt, which is a secondary mineral, the same can be said. And even for nickel, which is you know mostly used in steel production, if most of the demand goes to that market, then how do you make the price signal for it to go to a cathode market, as an example? Because you need nickel hydrate, you need a chemical. So it becomes very complicated, not in the sense that, okay, everything in the world is complicated. It's just that they're discrete and smaller markets than we're used to dealing with on the energy side. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. 
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Scottish Power, one of the top power companies in the UK, has announced that it plans to deploy a 50-megawatt battery system next year to store excess power from the decade-old Whiteley offshore wind farm. The battery will have more than twice the capacity of any existing battery in the UK. In addition to storing power instead of curtailing it, the battery will also smooth out small variations in the wind farm's output to help the energy system operator integrate it more easily. Scottish Power will begin construction work at the Whiteley project early next year and expects the facility to be fully operational by the end of 2020. Item 2 Fans of securitization as a way of retiring coal plants, which we discussed with Chris Hansen in episode 92, will want to log into our website and find the link to the in-depth article by Herman Trabish on the subject in Utility Doc. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.